We come now to the time where we will fellowship with the Lord upon his word and upon the table. And he leads us into that time of fellowship with Psalm 119. Uh, We have been working our way through this psalm, and we are now at verse 49. It says, Remember the word of your servant, in which you have made me hope. This is my comfort and my affliction, that your word has revived me. The arrogant utterly deride me, yet I do not turn aside from your law. I have remembered your ordinances from of old, O Lord, and comfort myself. Burning indignation has seized me because of the wicked who forsake your law. Your statutes are my songs in the house of my pilgrimage. O Lord, I remember your name in the night and keep your law. This has become mine, that I observe your precepts. I like in in verse 50, he speaks of, of the law as being his comfort, but also that which revives him. So as Pastor Thurston comes up and opens the word to us, I pray that it would be your comfort and that it would revive you this day. Brother. I ask you to turn your Bibles to the book of Zechariah, as well as in your bulletin, find the outline and uh, use that to follow along, read the quotes, and hopefully... Take the notes that you need in order to understand this passage. So we're going to just walk away through the the first section of Zechariah, vision by vision. There's eight of them. And uh, so today we're going to look at the the first vision that God gave Zechariah, um, 7 through 17. And then again, we'll go through the coming weeks. And then we'll wrap it up at the end of that by looking at the oracle section and then the prophetic section briefly. But the plan will be to look at each vision in uh, total. So 7 through 17 is the text we're looking at today. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of, of our king. And in the Bible times, and even during worship in Bible times, when they read God's word, they stood out of reverence and respect for the king of kings. So let me invite you to stand together with me out of reverence and respect for the word of our God. Hear now the word of our king. On the 24th day of the 11th month, which is the month of Shabbat, in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came to Zechariah, the prophet, the son of Berechiah, the son of, of, of Idu, as follows. I saw at night, and behold, a man was riding on a red horse, and he was standing among the myrtle trees which were in the ravine with red, sorrel, and white horses behind him. And then I said, My Lord, what are these? And the angel who was speaking with me said to me, I will show you what these are. And the man who was standing among the myrtle trees answered and said, These are those whom the Lord has sent to patrol the earth. So they answered the angel of the Lord, who was standing among the myrtle trees, and said, We have patrolled the earth, and beyond, and behold, all the earth is peaceful and quiet. <clears throat> Then the angel of the Lord answered and said, O Lord of hosts, how long wilt thou have no compassion for Jerusalem and the cities of Judah, with which thou hast been indignant these seventy years? And the Lord answered the angel who was speaking with me with glorious words, comforting words. So the angel who was speaking with me said to me, Proclaim, saying, and these are the glorious words, the comforting words. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I'm exceedingly zealous for Jerusalem and Zion, but I'm very angry with the nations who are at ease. 
For while I was only a little angry, they furthered the disaster. Therefore, thus says the Lord, I will return to Jerusalem with compassion. My house will be built in it, declares the Lord of hosts, and a measuring line will be stretched over Jerusalem. Again, proclaim, saying, thus says the Lord of hosts, my cities will again overflow with prosperity, and the Lord again comfort Zion, again choose Israel. Thus far, the reading of God's word, let's pray. Father, we thank you for the privilege that you've given us now to come and fellowship with you and your word. God bless this time. Holy Spirit, give us eyes to see, a responsive heart, and the ability genuinely to fellowship with you. Lord, bless this time, we pray. Give me grace to preach your word with, with unction. And your people, grace to, to, to fellowship with you now with unction. We commit this time to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. Most of you here are familiar with the story of Joseph, how God raised him up to be second in command of Egypt, and how through his God-given wisdom he saved many people because of the famine that struck the Near East at that time. But I wonder how many here have, take, have taken to heart what Joseph went through to get to that place. We read the story and go, boy, I'd love to, that, that, that'd be great if that was, was me. But we fail to realize all that Joseph went through to get there. It began when Joseph was a boy. God came and gave him two different dreams, prophetic visions, where he told Joseph that he would be the leader of his brothers. He would be the covenant head of his, of his family, of his dad, mom, and his brothers. Now, he was the 11th born male, which means that's saying something. Now, if you, if you as a child receive that, what comes to your mind to hear that? Well, it means you're going to be powerful, successful, um, authoritative, You're going to basically have easy street, brothers and sisters. You're the 11th born child of 11 boys at the time. You're going to be uh, thinking in that world, man, my life may be very difficult because there's not going to be a whole lot left over for me. But in this case, Joseph's thinking, I've got the world at my feet. But what actually happened? Well, at the age of 17, his brothers resenting the prophecy seek to kill him. They try to murder him. The only reason they don't succeed is because of Reuben. Reuben said, guys, you know, maybe not. Let's sell him instead. So they sold him into slavery. So now this child of promise is now in slavery in Potiphar's house in Egypt. He he quickly rises, and you might go, ooh, see, that's good. Brothers and sisters, that's like saying, I was a model patient, though I've got cancer. Yeah, that's good, but I've got cancer. This, yeah, it's good, but he's a slave. And shortly thereafter, what happened? He's accused of rape, attempted rape. And he's thrown in prison. And it's believed by most scholars that he was there for 12 years in an Egyptian prison, in essence, wasting away. Yeah, there were visions, but he became a nobody. It wasn't until he was 30 years old he's released. And at that point, what's going to happen next? I don't know. He rose to, the, to some power in Potiphar's house. Who knows what the next accusation is going to bring? It wouldn't be till he's 41 years old. 41. Genesis 44, where Joseph 
would be established clearly as the head of his family, where his brothers now recognize him as such. Which means, brothers and sisters, for the first 44 years of this man's life, God's promise notwithstanding, God's promise meant for him sorrow, suffering, difficulty, unmet expectations. How many times did that man wake up in that prison cell and say, God, what gives? All I want to do is serve you and look what you've done to me. Boy, it sounds familiar. It sounds like Jeremiah. It sounds like Moses. It sounds like so many people. Christ, Isaiah 49, I've toiled in vain. I've spent my strength on nothing in vanity. And brothers and sisters, that is exactly where God's people found themselves when the book of Zechariah was given. It's 520. And these are the spiritual green berets. These are the ones who had a heart for God. When God's people went into exile, Jeremiah was very clear. God was very clear. Build homes, uh, thrive in them, have children, grow them up, marry them, the whole bit. And they did. Babylon became a cushy spot for the Jews. In fact, by the time of Jesus Christ, the majority of Jews living in the world were in Babylon. The only reason that the temple kept functioning was because of the yearly offering that came from Babylon every year to... of the temple. So Babylon was a cushy spot for God's people. But when the issue came for them to rebuild the temple by Cyrus, 40,360 men, women, and children went. And we understand that these were people who cared. They had not become paganized, in the words of John MacArthur. They were men and women who loved God. And they were the ones going to go and rebuild and, in essence, become what they were before. You can imagine all the expectation. We're going to go there, and God's going to establish this kingdom again. Now, how big it's going to become at first, we don't know. We're under uh, Persia. But someday we'll be a free, independent nation. No doubt. They get there, and what happens? They immediately see it is a much bigger mess than they could have ever dreamt. They start working on the temple. The local rabble, the Samaritans, want to join them. They say no, so then they start persecuting them. God's people withdraw out of fear. The threats are there. We're going we're to write to the Persians. And you guys, I'm taking names. You're all going to be killed. And then a famine comes to represent their hearts. God sends this famine. So they're there, brothers. And these, are, these are the men and women who love God. These are the ones who are saying, I'll give up the, the security and the ease of this life to serve you, Lord, there. And what does God give them? He gives them trial and difficulty just like Joseph. And what's interesting, brothers and sisters, is when they got back to Palestine, get this, they lived there as aliens and strangers. You've got to appreciate that. Palestine was the homeland. We're not aliens and strangers. They're there. We're a theocracy, a nation, a people of of God. No, brothers and sisters, after 586 B.C., God's people, his genuine people, from that point on and forevermore would live as aliens and strangers in this land. Never having a home. Never having a nation on this earth that we can call to be ours. Unless, of course, you get paganized and you want to say that your nation is the United States. We have not had that. God's people have not had that. In fact, we learned from Hebrews chapter 13. Remember this? 
Therefore, Jesus also, that he might sanctify the people through his own blood, suffered outside the gate. He suffered in the wilderness, is the emphasis. And then it says, hence let us go out to him, outside the camp, bearing his reproach. Brothers and sisters, you want to be a Christian? you got to live in the wilderness. you got to be willing to live in a dark land, a hard land, a place where this world is not your home, where what you see as potential allies are not allies. And you've got to be willing like Joseph. Guys, brothers and sisters, God has the end game in mind. And that end game is the new heavens and the new earth. Therefore, everything he does on this earth is to prepare you for that moment. Just like he did with Christ. Just like he did with Joseph, who, who's a picture of Jesus Christ. Where, where, where 44 uh, years of his life was, was suffering and difficulty. Jesus learned obedience from the things which he suffered. That is Christianity. If you don't want that, then don't be a a Christian. But that's Christianity. You go, man, that's heavy, Greg. It is heavy. And it's why God's people were suffering the way that they were, struggling the way that they were, because they went there with other expectations. No, we're going to go back there, and it's going to be this wonderful story where we're going to live happily ever after. And they didn't. So this is God's message. These next eight visions or God's initial message to his people living in dark times. And each vision comes with it another deposit, another statement, another chapter of comfort and encouragement. Okay? This morning's focus is on our true rest, our true comfort. Notice with me, if you would, the setting, verse 7. On the 24th day of the 11th month, which is the month of Shabbat, in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came to Zechariah, the prophet, the son of Berechiah, the son of Idu, as follows. A couple notes real quickly. This is February 15, 519 B.C., two months after Haggai's last prophecy. Okay? Um, Because this is the last name date or a, a stated date until we get to the oracles, it is believed by scholars that... Zechariah received each of these visions, these eight visions, in this one night. So all of these visions came flooding upon him in the course of one night. Now what is significant here is the statement in the month of Shabbat. Because if you'll notice chapter 1, verse 1, he, he gives a name reference or a date a reference, but he doesn't give us the Jewish month. Here he gives us the Jewish month. Why? Well, guess what? God's people, God, the Jews of this time, their calendar came, the name for their months came from Assyria. These are not Hebrew words. These are Assyrian root words. And um, Shabbat is, a not, is close enough to Shabbat that there's, there, there most likely is a pun here, a Hebrew pun. you got a quote before Ian DeGuid. Although spelled differently, Shabbat sounds like Shabbat. It, it thus poses the question, is this pagan month of Shabbat really going to be the month of true Sabbath or rest for God's people. Now, whether or not that pun's there or not, you can, it's debatable. I want you to see that the point of this vision, first vision, is to answer the question, where is our true rest found? Where is, in this side of the grave, as aliens and strangers, where is our true comfort to come from? That's the point of this vision. With that, notice with me the vision, verse 8. 
through 11. I saw at night, footnote real quickly, in the darkness. Hebrews more inclined to show it than say it. I've taught you that many times now, right? Hebrews more inclined. Unlike Greek, Hebrews is going to show it rather than say it. They're not going to be direct, uh, typically. The fact that he received this at night, my commentators go nuts talking about this. Brothers and sisters, it's at night you can't see. That's where you and I are living right now. This side of the grave is lived with our inability to see what really is going on. The secret things belong to the Lord our God. You're only 29, right? We don't understand what's going on. We don't see. We might see a small smidgen of God's big plan. We don't see it. So it's at this time of darkness when we do not see God's people were blind. They didn't understand what was going on. God came and gave this light in the darkness. It's very beautiful. I saw at night and behold, you're never going to believe this, a man riding on a red horse, that same rider, he was standing among the myrtle trees, which were in the ravine. The word in the Hebrew means the deepest part. So this is probably the deepest part of whatever. There, there were four valleys that surrounded Jerusalem. One of those four valleys. Um, with red, sorrel, and white horses behind him. These are different regiments. Now there's a lot of discussion about the significance of the colors. And it's all speculative, brothers and sisters. So I'm not going to speculate. I don't know the significance of the colors, and I dare say no one else does. Okay, the text doesn't tell us what the red, sorrel, white horses mean. All right? That being said, what is significant is that while they're there, most likely this is the Kidron Valley because that's the only valley that would have supported the myrtle trees referenced here. Myrtle trees were evergreen trees. They grew to be seven to eight feet tall, and in the right season, they would have these white flowers. They needed a lot of water, and the Kidron Valley, we know, sustained uh, a nice garden um, just prior to this time. So it most likely that this is the Kidron Valley where this vision is taking place. And Zechariah sees, in this midst of all these myrtle trees, three, or really four, angels. Or not angels, four, yeah, four angels, if you will. Um, One on a red horse, and then the ones behind. Nine. Then I said, my Lord, what are these? And the angel, who was speaking with me, said, I will show you what these are. But then the man who was standing among the myrtle trees answered and said, these are those whom the Lord has sent to patrol the earth. Okay, there are two figures here, two angels. The first one is, is the angel who accompanies Zechariah throughout the course of these visions. We're going we're to see this angel a whole lot more as we go on in the coming weeks. But then the second one is an angel who re- rode the red horse, who's standing amongst the myrtle trees, who in verse 11, if you look ahead, is the angel of the Lord. Now, we've studied that before. You know that the angel of the Lord in the Old Testament is a pre-incarnate Manifestation of Jesus Christ himself. So Jesus Christ on the red horse is the leader. And behind him are three different regiment of angels who are patrolling the earth. Notice what he says. So Zachary says, what are these? And the angel is about ready to speak. Jesus speaks up and says, these are angels who patrol And notice what he says. These are those whom the Lord has sent to patrol the earth. The word for uh, patrol is significant. In the nation of Persia, under Cyrus, 
It was known for its secret of police or spy network of horsemen who collected and distributed information from the far corners of the earth. In other words, the horsemen of Zechariah's vision were akin to the Persian secret service. So this is what's going on in the darkness. This is what you don't see, Christian. Yes, you're, 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 you're going through difficult times, and you wonder, maybe God doesn't love me. If he loved me, my life would be easy or easier. And God here says, opens our eyes to see, do you understand that God right now has angels patrolling the earth? And they come back and report to him to tell him what's going on in your life. And you go, does God need those angels to tell him? Absolutely not. But we need to know that God needs those, or that, that God has those angels telling him. Right? I mean, we need to know it. We need to know that we are in God's hands. God is, is, we are in God's heart. He cares about us. And whatever we're going through, he knows it. We at times think God doesn't care. He doesn't see. He's deaf to our cries. He, he's simply ignoring us. Maybe he's like the gods of Baal. Do you remember when Elisha sat there and said, what, is your God taking a nap? Maybe he's in the privy. What's wrong with your God that he can't light, those, light this fire? We can sometimes hear, you know, hear that and go, oh, that's silly, that's wrong, our God's not uh, like that. But when push comes to shove and we're struggling, what do we think? What, is God not listening to me anymore? Does he not know what's going on in my life? God tells us here, oh, no, he knows. He knows full well what's going on in your life. Verse 11. So they, the angels, these three regiment, regiments of angels, answered the angel of the Lord, answered Christ, who is standing among the myrtle trees. Just to let you know, angels who are patrolling the earth are not advocates. Okay, they're not going to go to God on your behalf. But this is beautiful how this is written. They go to Christ. And notice what we read. They answered the Lord who was standing among the myrtle trees and said, we have patrolled the earth and behold, all the earth is peaceful and quiet. All right, on the surface... Uh, two or three of my uh, commentators made a big deal. I got a footnote. I just copied it, cut and paste. So if you afterwards want to get, get these notes online, you, if you don't have access to my commentaries, you can at least read what one commentary wrote historically, what was going on in the Persian Empire at this point. And in 520 B.C., all was peace and quiet in the, in, during the Persian Empire. It was, in the, it was embroiled in a civil war, believe it or not. And in 520, it was just this momentary lull. So a lot of commentators are saying that's what they're, they're talking about. But then again, brothers and sisters... It's not. Because on the outside, it may have looked like there was a quietness. And it was. There wasn't war going on in the Persian Empire. The reality is, there was a lot of oppression. There was a lot of, a lot of attacking of God's people at this time. Would you notice the word um, ease in verse 15, where he criticizes the nations? That word ease, sha'anan, speaks of a peace which arises from injustice. And the words peace um, in verse 11 and quiet in verse 11, you've got the Hebrew there. It's not shalom. The word here is, is shakat, and it's used, it can, it, it, it's, these words can be used positively. Don't miss, don't miss it. But they also can be used negatively. It can be used, for example, the shakat can be used of the selfish inactivity in Moab, Jeremiah 48, or the prosperous ease of Samaria. And the quiet... Yashub is used derogatorily of Egypt, Isaiah 30, verse 7, in connection with their failure to honor international treaties. So, on the surface, everything's peace and quiet. 
But here in a little bit, God's going to deal with the fact that it's not all peace and quiet. Because God's people are oppressed. God's people are attacked. This is a dark world. And this world eats up and spits out Christians. It's a meat grinder. It's a Christian grinder. That's the world in which we live. Now, brothers and sisters, please don't hear me. I'm not morose. I'm not, the, I'm not trying to be a downer. But that's the, that's the reality of what we live in. Now, maybe not in the United States. But I'll tell you what. Go to China as a Christian. Go to some of the Islamic countries of the Near East as a Christian. Go to Africa as a Christian. Go to India as a Christian. Go to England as a Christian and stand up and proclaim God's word about homosexuality and you'll be, as a seven one year old manhandled, tackled uh, to the ground and beaten up. That's the world in which we live. And so God comes and the angels say, it's, it's quiet. And so we take this quiet, not as the quiet of, of rest, but the quiet when a dominant or domineering individual so um, humbles people that they're afraid to speak up. Okay? Abusive homes are like that. The man has such a heavy hand that everyone's there walking on eggshells. But if you walked into that home, you go, whoa, what a, what a peaceful home. Man, this is a great home. Little do you know those kids are subject. Or that wife is subject to horrible abuse. That's the peace and quiet the angels Notice the important question, verse 12. Then the angel of the Lord answered, this is Jesus. O Lord of hosts, how long wilt thou have no compassion for Jerusalem and the cities of Judah with which thou hast been indignant these 70 years? Note this, the focus is not on God's people here. It's it's on Jerusalem and it's on the cities of Judah. Okay? In God's response to to the theocracy, Okay. Most of you are aware of this theology, Old Testament theological t- uh, teaching, that God established the Old Testament theocracy of Israel on a conditional basis. Deuteronomy 28, Leviticus 26. And if they rebelled against God, they'd be wiped off the face of the earth forever. Deuteronomy 28, Leviticus 26, and many other such uh, passages. So that's what's happened. The nation's... Our, the nation has been wiped off. Jerusalem, Zion, wiped off. The cities of Judah, wiped off. And the angel is saying, God, how much longer are you going to allow Jerusalem to be as it is? Have no compassion for your, your people. Now, the significant thing in this passage I want you to see is the fact that who's the one asking it? This is in the darkness, brothers and sisters. This is what you and I don't see on a daily basis. This is Jesus Christ receiving words and coming to the Father and saying, God the Father, I'm going I'm to speak on behalf of our people. Christ is an advocate. Do you understand how this is presenting him? This is why this book was such a blessed book to people in the Reformation who are being persecuted and, 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 and burnt at the stake and executed. Why? Because this book is saying in the darkest of dark, Christ is your advocate. He is speaking on your behalf to the Father. So often you and I think of Christ as, as being deaf. As Christ, why would you do this? Christ, you're not nice, you're not mean, or you're, you're mean, you're not being loving. 
When brothers and sisters, we could not be further from the truth. Jesus Christ is our advocate. Listen to Hebrews chapter 4. We do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all ways as we are yet without sin. Real quickly, sympathy and compassion. The Greek word for compassion, splachnizomai. I love that word, splachnos. You guys know it, right? It means your bowels, okay? Splachnizomai. And it refers to when you see life and, you're, and you get a gut ache because of what you see. That's compassion. Matthew 9, 36, uh, and seeing the multitudes, he felt splachnads. Or it's, that's not the word. It's the word, but it's not the form. Splachnidzamai, okay? He fe- it, it, it caused Christ to have a bellyache when he looked at people. He felt, he felt nauseated because he, he, he hurt so bad for them. That's compassion. The word for sympathy, sympatheo. A pathos is the word for suffer. Soon is the word with. Not only is Christ, does he see you and is he, does he, is he burdened for you, Christian, right now where you are, but he also suffers with you. And that's why the text says he, he was tempted in all ways as we are yet without sin. He not only, to be uh, compassionate is to drive by a person in a, a flat tire and go, oh man, how sad, that's rough. That little old lady has to change that car by herself. You know, to be sympathetic is to stop the car, get out, and actually change the tire. That's what Jesus does. He both is compassionate and sympathetic. And because of that, Hebrews 4, let us therefore draw near with confidence to the throne of grace. If you see Christ like this, like he really is, not like our imagination makes him to be, because of our false expectations that are not fulfilled, but if we see Christ as he really is, we see him as our advocate, and therefore, we, we draw near with confidence to the throne of grace. In our dark times, we appeal to Christ, to the heavenly throne. Do you realize that? We get to go into the King of kings and Lord of lords throne room through Christ, in Christ, and make supplication before the God Almighty, the great I Am, regarding the things of this world. Man, if you understood prayer like that, I think you'd pray more. He's our advocate. Now, what does this advocate ask of God, and what does God respond with? Well, that brings us to the important message. So this is the message. All that's the preface. All that's the background. Now let's look at the message God has for his people, the first message to his people living in a dark, dark world. What is God's message to you, to his people? Notice the first one. Well, let's start verse 13. And the Lord, God the Father, Answered the angel who was speaking with me with gracious words, comforting words. It's not just Christ who feels sick. It's God the Father. So we don't have this, as the liberals called it, this this slaughterhouse religion where you got this angry God who has to be placated by Jesus. God the Father is behind salvation, John 3.16. God the Father. And God the Father is the one who answers Jesus Christ. Listen to these comforting words. Now, in the Hebrew, the word is nahum. Nahum. It's onomatopoetic. You've, I've defined this word before, probably, I don't know, four or five years ago. Okay? Nahum. It was in another uh, prophecy that we looked at. Nahum is an onomatopoetic word, and it is the sound that is made when you've worked 15, 16, 17 hours under the hot sun moving rock. Okay? I want you to imagine doing that. And then coming home, 
white, covered with just dirt and grime, white with the rock. You walk through the front door, and someone there, your children, your husband, your wife, your whatever, say, oh, you're finally home. I've drawn up a warm bath for you. So you go into that bathroom, and it's, it's just the perfect temperature. And you sit inside of it, and what, what's the first thing that comes out of your mouth? <sighs> it's the word, nah, nah. <sighs> it sounds like relief, doesn't it? That's this word. God spoke. <sighs> what you're going to read here, now if I do a bad job of exegeting this and teaching this, it's my fault, not the text. I'm telling you right now, what God gives here should make you go, every one of us, this corporate, <gasps> wow, do I ever feel fantastic. I still have cancer. I still don't have a job. The world still hates me. We're still the object of wrath. But man, I'll tell you what, I feel fantastic. That's what we're going to read here. Now, I'm not overselling it. That's what we have. These are words of, <sighs> I just hope I don't mess it up. Okay, here it goes. First, first message, God has and will always care for his people, verse 14. So the angel who was speaking with me said to me, proclaim saying, thus says the Lord of hosts, the omnipotent God, no one can thwart him. I am exceedingly jealous for Jerusalem and Zion. I'm not going to spend a lot of time defining Jerusalem and Zion. Zion is the name given to the, that site prior to David, primarily. Jerusalem is, this, is the name given to that site once David made his capital and once Solomon moved the ark there, which meant that's where the temple was. Jerusalem, from this point on, would become the center of God's redeeming work. Okay? Mark that. We're going to come back to it. Jerusalem became the center of God's redeeming work in redemptive history. All right, But what stands out here is that little phrase, I am. Do you see it? When God asked, or when Moses asked God, whom shall I say sent me? What did he say? God said, tell him, yeh That's the Hebrew word for I am. It is also the root upon which the tetragrammaton, Yahweh, is built. Tell him, Yahweh sent you. I am that I am. What's the word mean? Yeah. It's a to-be verb. It, it means God is. God's never been. God, I'm sorry, never was created. He never will end. He's always been. He is. But it's bigger than that. It's more than just the fact that God's always been. It's that God con- uh, constitutes reality. I am. I am, what, I am what constitutes reality. When you read the word logos, in the beginning was the word, word was right? John 1, the word logos in the, in the philosophical schools of, of uh, uh, Greece was the idea of reality. Christ constitutes reality. If you don't have Christ, you're living in a fantasy world. I am. It's bigger than that. But notice this. God says, I am, and now he gives us what he is at this moment. I am, what's he say? Jealous. This is not what God sometimes is. This is not what God could be tomorrow if you do it right. This is what God is ever and always at all times about you. So this is the darkness. This is what you don't see. You don't know and you don't see this, but you got to see it now and by faith believe it. God always is jealous for you. Now, what's the word jealous mean? We take the word as a negative word because it means to, to desire something you have no right to. That's jealousy. 
And we know, biblically speaking, God is not a jealous God in that sense. He doesn't have that jealousy. Um, he's a jealous God, but he doesn't have that jealousy. And therefore, we understand that God, everything God desires is what he has a right to. We call that the doctrine of creator rights, by the way, Revelation 4.11. Right? God made all things and therefore has the right to be praised by all things. And when he's not praised, he's moved to jealousy. But it's bigger than that. The word jealousy, brothers and sisters, is a word, it's a marriage word. It's a marital word. It's a word best understood in the context of marriage. And it is to be a a man in marriage and to be jealous is to be a man who wants his wife to grow in grace. That's the idea of a jealous. That's the idea. That's the good side of jealousy. We always view it negatively. The good side of jealousy is it's the God-given right to encourage, build up, grow the person that they might become what they're supposed to be. Look at the text, or the, the, the quote, George Klein. While jealousy strikes many moderns as a negative emotion, jealousy comprises a fundamental part of the vocabulary of love and often describes God's relationship to Israel. Jealousy describes the intensity of God's love towards his people with the, with the result, brothers and sisters, that because God is jealous for us, he is going to complete what, what he began in you. This is what God is always. Not when you do the right things and say the right words. This is what God is when you're in sin. This is what God is when you're in the height of, of devotion to him or the depths of rebellion. This is God's disposition towards you in Christ. He loves you. And he is working towards your growth in grace. Your conformity to the image of Jesus Christ. With the end game in mind, walking with him in the new heavens and the new earth by the cool of the day. Or in the cool of the day, Genesis 4, right? Or 3. That's what God's end game is. And by, 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 by them saying, your God's a jealous God, tells us instantaneously multiple things. He has not forgotten you. And he'll never forget you. I am. He is that. He's always been that. He's all, he always will be that. And therefore, he is always going to be working with you and growing you and maturing you. He'll never let you go, Christian. Ever. Not for eternity. That's what's being proclaimed by this first message. This is what you don't see. But if we live by eyes, by, by our, our sight. But if you open your eyes to scripture and live by faith, you see that God's message first and foremost is that your sovereign, the Lord of hosts, your sovereign God who cannot be thwarted, set his love upon you and he will bring you to where he by his providence plans. Romans 8, 37 through 30. Uh, nine would be a glorious summary of this, for I'm convinced that neither depth nor height, nor depth, nor depth nor height, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor, nor I already said height, nor depth, nor any other uh, created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's this first message. Incredible. That is you, Christian. And if you'll by faith accept that, you'll be done fighting and rancoring with God. With God, why are you doing this? Haven't I read your word? Haven't I done enough for you? Christian, get out of the appeasement business. God is not Zeus. That's what you do with Zeus. That's what you do with pagan gods. God is the true God who has set his love upon you, which will never change. Wow. Secondly, would you notice? 
Evil men will, will never escape God's notice or wrath. 15, but I'm very angry with the nations who are at ease. For while I was only a little angry, that's the theocracy, that's the exile. And it wasn't, get, it wasn't addressed towards the people, it was addressed towards the nation. We've talked a lot about that. While I was only a little angry, they furthered the disaster. This is a reference. I, remember, Zechariah is, is a master of, of quoting Isaiah and many other passages in Scripture. But here he's focusing on Isaiah. The last one, comfort, Nehum, Isaiah 40. Comfort of comfort my people. Now he's quoting two, uh, three different texts in Isaiah. I'm going to give you one of them, Isaiah 10.5, where he basically says the same thing. Woe to Assyria, the rod of my anger, and the staff of, in whose hand is my indignation. I send it against a godless nation and commissioned it against the people of my fury to capture booty and to seize plunder and to trample them down like mud in the streets. So God raised up the Assyrians to discipline the northern kingdom. Yet it does not so intend, nor does it plan so, to do in its heart. In other words, Assyria's not going to do that. It's not that they're not going to do it. They're going to do that and a whole bunch more. But rather, it, it, it's, its purpose is to destroy, to cut off many. Man, I, get, I raise them up. It's like, you know, I'm going to get a watchdog. I'm going to train a watchdog to protect us from the robber. And he did. Great dog. This is, you know, name it, right? This is, this is uh, whatever. This dog ate, you know, bit a robber and woke us up and protected us. Not to mention he also killed three of my kids. But, but you know what? He's a great dog. That's what happened with Assyria. God raised it up to discipline his people, and they went bonkers. So in verse 12, we read of Isaiah, So it will be that when the Lord has completed all his work on Mount Zion and on Jerusalem, he will say, I will punish the fruit of the arrogant heart of the king of Assyria and the pomp of his haughtiness. They got, they, the, the king became king in Assyria, and he thought that he was God. He exalted himself over God. And he misused people, mistreated people, not realizing the power God gave him was the power to serve people. No, he used it to serve himself. And that's exactly what God is saying here in Zechariah. That's, that's the, the uh, source of what Zechariah is saying here. I'm very angry with the nations who are at ease. They're oppressive. For while I was only a little angry, they furthered the disaster. The point I want you to see from this, brothers and sisters, is very simple. There is accountability for any and all who make it difficult for God's people. Don't miss that. You go, man, Lord, I'm just trying to serve you. And these people keep on attacking us and hurting us. You know, when you're going to rise up and do something about it, read the Psalms. You get the Psalms that say this a lot. Rise up, God. You know, your people are being sold cheaply. Rise up. And what Zechariah is saying here is, secondly, God is going to rise up. Understand that. That's not in our family devotion. We talked about a facet of this. We talked about how, do you realize in two billion years in eternity? I was quoting from Lewis. All the things of this life will seem like a dream. And we'll talk about it. He didn't say a dream. He said a fable. It'll seem like, you know, the stories that you get, you know, well, they say 20,000 you know, generations ago, um, a man jumped off that cliff. So now they call that jumping cliff, you know. Um, that's where that came from. And now he, that happened so long ago, we don't even know if it's true. But, but we, know, so we still know the story. And eternity will know it's true. But we'll be there two billion years. And the things of this life will still be talked about. And it will seem like one of those fables. 
And then I, the sober reality. And all throughout that time, the non-believer will have been in hell suffering. Brothers, don't pray for vengeance. Pray for mercy. But God says vengeance is coming. It's coming. That's revelation, the scroll. God gave it to him. Eat it. Eat it. Eat it. John takes it. Ooh, it's sweet. That's vengeance, brother. It's sweet. Yes! You mean to tell me all the people attacking God's people right now someday are going to get their, their comeuppance? Yes! But digest it. Let it sit in your belly a little bit. What's it, what's it going to do to your belly? It's going to make you feel sick to your stomach. It's a second message of comfort. Christian, there's a sweetness here. Everyone and anyone who's opposing Christ and his body are going to get their day in the court of heaven. Thirdly and lastly, so not only is God loving you and jealous for you and therefore committed to your growth and grace with the end game in mind, he was with Joseph, Jeremiah, Isaiah, Christ, Moses. Secondly, those in this world who are attacking, justice is going to prevail. You can be sure of it. And thirdly, 16. Jerusalem will continue to remain at the heart of God's redemptive program. Notice with me. Therefore, thus says the Lord, I will return to Jerusalem with compassion. My house will be built in it, declares the Lord of hosts, and a measuring line will be stretched over Jerusalem. So real quickly, two things. One, you're building the temple, you're going to succeed. 516, they did. This time, it's going to take. And secondly, I'm already looking at Jerusalem, and I'm seeing. You guys ever see a beginning of a construction site? They put little wood stakes down, and they put string on it. That's what they're talking about here. And a measuring line will be stretched over. The entire city is going to be rebuilt. Eighty years later, it would be rebuilt with um, um, Nehemiah. So God says, it's going to happen. And notice what he says here. My house will be built in it. I will return to Jerusalem. Now, the question is, what is Jerusalem? Okay, so even though God's t- temple and the city have been raised uh, to the ground, the Lord still plans to, to still has plans for it. What are those plans? What is Jerusalem? And what I want you to see is from Zechariah. Remember, Zechariah is the most messianic prophetic book in the Old Testament. It is mostly it is the most quoted, frequently quoted book in the gospel narratives of Christ. In other words, Zechariah is all about Christ. Um, for example, the temple that they're building. Turn with me, if you would, real quickly to Zechariah chapter 6, verse 13. One of the visions we're going to look at in the coming weeks, months, Zechariah 6, 13. Yes, this is the, the branch. This is Jesus Christ, brothers and sisters. Yes, it is he who will build the temple of the Lord. Wait a second. Wait a second. The temple will be built in 516 B.C. No, that's not what's talking about. The, the temple of Zechariah is not the temple that you're seeing. Yes, they're going to build that, but the temple that God has ultimately in mind, remember the, the, the uh, dual lens of prophecy, the dual of uh, fulfillment? It's like a telescope. You have two lens, the near lens, the far lens. You can't see things far, but if you put up both lens and look from, through the near at the image on the far, you see reality. If you look at the temple in 516 and that's it, you've missed it. You've missed God's plan. God's plan is not that temple. That temple is the near vision. It's the, te- it's the temple on the, on the other lens, which is the temple that we're talking about here. And that's the temple that Christ would build, which is his body. 
That'll be Zechariah 6. But you see, Jerusalem's the, the same way in Zechariah. Notice with me 8.8. 8. Go to 8.8. 8. And I will bring them back, and they will live in the midst of Jerusalem, and they will be my people, and I will be their, uh, be their God in truth and righteousness. Can you remember a time from 528 uh, B.C. all the way down that Jerusalem has ever been that? I can't. Unless I take Jerusalem as a reference to the body of Christ, the city of God. Then I'd say, oh yeah, that's an apt description of the body of Jesus Christ. Go to 8, um, 22. So many peoples and many nations will come to seek the Lord of hosts in Jerusalem and to entreat the favor of the Lord. When have pagan nations gone to Jerusalem to seek the favor of the Lord? You cannot name a time in redemptive history where pagan nations or church history came to Jerusalem and said, please pray for us. I can name you many times when Gentiles, Gentile nations have come to Christ and pleaded for him. Would you notice with me 9.10? And I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the horse from Jerusalem and the bow of war will be cut off and he will speak um, peace to the nations. His dominion will be from sea to sea, from the river to the ends of the earth. When did Jerusalem exist where there was no fighting? No need to have a gun, a, a sword, or anything. Well, that's where we are right now. If, you're, if the Jerusalem here is the Jerusalem, not of the literal city, but the Jerusalem on the far lens. Finally, 14.8. But you see, it's used this way throughout Zechariah 14.8. It will come about in that day that the living waters will flow out of Jerusalem, half of them towards the eastern sea and the other half towards the western sea. It will be in summer as well as in winter. That sounds like revelation. When did Jerusalem, the physical city, be that? It, it, this is, you got to see Jerusalem in, in Zechariah is not the little city. Jerusalem in Zechariah is the far lens. And I just want you to see, that's how Paul uses it. Turn with me to Galatians chapter 4, just briefly, and we're going to wrap this up. Galatians chapter 4, if you would, verse 21. And I want you to notice that the New Testament speaks of Jerusalem in this way, as well as Revelation, by the way. But I'm going to use Galatians because it's, it's, it's talking about now, not the end time. Galatians 4, Paul is writing to a church molested by Jews who boasted that they were the true children of Abraham because they were Jews. The Jews were the true children. If you want to be a true child, you've got to become a Jew first before you become a Christian. Right? So he's writing to this group that believes that to be a true Christian, you have to be a true Jew. And a true Jew, it's a child of Abraham. Now, amazing, but here Paul did not debate that. He let that stand. You're right. Those Judaizers who probably aren't even saved, who are forcing you to be circumcised, they are true children of Abraham. Let their boast stand. But I got a question. Who's their mother? Sarah or Hagar? They're children. But who's the mother? That's the text. Notice. Tell me, you who want to be under the law, do you listen to it? Do you listen to its teaching? For it was written that Abraham had two sons, one by the bondwoman, one by the first woman. But, for the, but the son of the bondwoman was born according to the flesh, and the son of the free woman through the promise. So Paul's saying, yeah, these, these Jews are children of Abraham, but their mother's Hagar. 
Incredible rip. This is allegorically speaking, for these two women, allegorically speaking, are two covenants. One proceeding from Mount Sinai, bearing children who are to be slaves. She's Hagar. Now this Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia and corresponds to the present Jerusalem. You know what Jerusalem is? Enslaved to slavery. And their mother is not Sarah, it's Hagar. But the Jerusalem above is free. She is our mother. If you're a Christian, you're part of Jerusalem. You've been, you're now a citizen of Jerusalem. And that citizen of Jerusalem is freedom. When we look at Zechariah chapter 1, and Zechariah comes and teaches and tells us that there's going to come a time when God is going to rebuild Jerusalem and do all these glorious things through it, as the rest of this prophecy is going to give us, we understand this prophecy being referenced to not the physical city at the time, which would be horribly underwhelming and eventually destroyed in 70 AD, but to the Jerusalem above, that which Christ is creating. So as I just said, the, the third uh, promise God has and will always care for, I'm sorry, that's the third one. What's my third? Jerusalem will uh, continue to remain at the heart of God's redemptive program, but understand the Jerusalem we're talking about is the body of Jesus Christ, the city of God, the glorious body of our Savior. And in that context, actually, Ian Duguid, the rebuilt Jerusalem of 515 was a mere shadow of the good things that are yet still to come. God is building a new Jerusalem, a place of fullness of blessing where every tear will be wiped away, every pain eased, and every sorrow comforted. Brothers and sisters, we're part of that city. Already, not yet. Verse 17, again, proclaim. Now notice the word again. Again, proclaim. Thus says the Lord God, my cities again overflow with prosperity. And the Lord will again comfort Zion, again choose Jerusalem. The emphasis of again tells us that this is all to fulfill the Old Testament promises of God. Okay, I'm out of time. I can't, I can't explain more of that. But that's the idea. He's, he's emphasizing again, again, God's promises have not failed. God is your God. He will care for, for you. And Jerusalem is still precious to him. But the Jerusalem that we're interested in is the Jerusalem above the city of the living God, of which you and I are members. Philippians 3, our citizenship is not Rome, Philippians 3. It's God. It's Our citizenship is in heaven, the new Jerusalem. So notice the threefold comforting words that God gave his people at this point. I hope they're comforting to you in your darkness, in the dark times. One, God is always caring for you. You're never out of his heart. You're never out of his sight. You're never... Uh, uh, bygone, you're never extra. You are precious, central to God. Secondly, unrighteous people are going to have their day. No sin will be unaccounted for. And thirdly, God still has plans for Jerusalem, the city of our God of which we are members. Let me close with a quote from Ian, and and I'll be done. Things around us are not always as they should be, whether for us or for God's opponents. We don't always understand what God is doing or why he works in the way he does. We see faithful missionaries taken from the field through cancer while partying pagans exhibit the best of health. We see the churches or see churches that preach a false gospel of health and prosperity filled with worshipers while faithful ministries often seem to attract few adherents. In situations like these, we too are often tempted to doubt God. Like Zechariah's hearers, we have a light to hold on to in the midst of, a ge- of, of general darkness, the word of God. For us, this word is made more sure since it is now written down and attested by the witness of the Spirit. If we abandon that light and trust instead in our feelings, 
we shall be left floundering in the darkness. It is still true in our day that God sees, God cares, and God answers. That, brothers and sisters, is God's message to you this day. Let's pray. Father, what a joy and a delight to look at a passage like this that from the surface maybe looks so, what in the world is being said here? But as we saw last week, just dig a little bit deeper and my, oh my, the waters flow. Lord, what a wonderful truth this passage is. No doubt the reason why this became the favorite of a persecuted people in church history. God, thank you that you are our God. Reassure your your people. Holy Spirit, give your people grace to see in a responsive heart to leave this day with the knowledge that, that whatever thought that wells up in our minds that says you don't care, that the wicked get their way, that you don't have great plans for us, well, that's our flesh. Give us the grace to to quickly tell us where those thoughts belong and quickly correct ourselves with your glorious promises of your word. Lord, bless your people. Encourage your people this day. For while many of us in this room don't have a hard go, we know that every one of us in this room someday will. Give us the grace, O Lord, at that moment of trial to not doubt, but to take you at your word and to trust you by faith. God, we love you. Thank you for being such a glorious God who has given us such insight into what otherwise would be darkness. Thank you for this light. We pray now as we go to this lightened meal that, Lord, we would come and be refreshed and renewed and encouraged as we fellowship with you around this glorious statement that, Lord, you remember us and you care for us. We pray this in Jesus' name.